try to deceive you. To try and tell you one thing because they want you to do a particular thing. So they will withhold facts from you. They'll withhold truths from you. They may give partial truth, but they won't give the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. They try to get their way in order to help us believe whatever lie they are trying to tell us. I'm sure at some point we've all encountered somebody like this in our lives. But none so much as the great deceiver himself, Satan, the devil. The devil loves to tempt people to deceive them, to twist truth in order to have his way with us. This should come as no surprise. This is what he has been doing throughout history. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's what he did with Israel and it's what he does with us. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Because not only does he come after all of these, he comes after the Lord Jesus Christ himself to tempt him, to try and deceive him into falling and ruining his sonship. As the beloved son of God. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with us this morning to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I believe that is on page 960. I forgot to look up and verify. It's like 960, 961 in the Red Pew Bible if you're using that this morning. While you're turning there, uh, just to, to give us a running start of where we've been. We've seen over the last several weeks, really uh, over the span of a month, or two months of the Lord Jesus being introduced to us as the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's the one who has pleased the father, as we saw at the end of last week there in Matthew 3. He has pleased the father in his fulfilling all righteousness by even going through the waters of baptism so that he may identify with us. Right after this declaration, though, we enter another wilderness journey in Matthew 4 beginning in verse 1. So I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. No sooner 
then Jesus is affirmed. Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. He's led there by the Spirit, so it is the Spirit who is guiding him out into this wilderness. Keep in mind, like we said and mentioned last week, the wilderness here is not the wilderness of the north woods, of trees everywhere. Possibly, but doubtful. Remember, this is the Middle East. The, the wilderness language here is, is to encapsulate that sense of isolation. Surely, to goodness, north woods people can relate to that, of wanting that isolation. Jesus was led out into isolation in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But he's led there by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is led here in his triune nature by the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He is led there to be tempted because part of Jesus continuing to identify with his people, he must endure what they go through. And as they're tempted, so he must be tempted. So he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. But he's here tempted by the devil himself. This great tempter, this great deceiver is the one bringing this temptation, but it's under God's allowance, the Father's allowance of it. And so Satan goes out to tempt Jesus here in isolation. But he doesn't come in his strength. He comes in his weakness. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. That's when the tempter comes to Jesus. When he is vulnerable in his humanity. When he is hungry. When he is weak and tired. This 40 days symbolizing what Israel went through of 40 years in the wilderness. Of the 40 days also being tied to Moses on Mount Sinai. He was there 40 days and 40 nights before God. This tying to it. And this is when this Jesus, the beloved son of God, who the father is well pleased in, is being tempted. Now, what in the world does all of this have to do with us? How do we understand this main point then of, of these temptations in the wilderness? Well, here I think is the main idea of Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11. The wilderness battle that was previously lost by Adam and Israel... And we in them has now been won by Jesus. That's what we need to see this morning. And I think this is the main idea of this text. The wilderness battle that was previously lost by Adam and Israel. And we in them has now been won by Jesus. Keep that in mind as we unfold this in the following three points. We're going to unfold this in in three points. Point number one, the temptation of self-interest. Point number two, the temptation of knowledge. And point number three, the temptation of self-glory. These overlap some, so, so forgive me, they're not perfect breaks, but these encapsulate hopefully the idea. Point one, the temptation of self-interest. Point number two, the temptation of knowledge. And point number three, the temptation of self-glory. Point number one, the temptation of self-interest. Verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. First, notice here how the tempter approaches Jesus, the Son of God. He questions his sonship. 
If you are the son of God, then do this. He wants to create doubt in the sonship. He wants to to twist God's words and what it looks like to be a son. He wants to make a ploy, especially with Jesus being hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. He wants to tempt him and say, prove your sonship by taking these stones, these nothing, no good for nothing stones and turn them to bread. Use them for your self-gain so that you can use your divinity for your self-fulfillment and purpose instead of what it was intended for. That's what Satan here is trying to do. He's trying to, to seat this poison and deception in appealing to what Jesus needs in order to lure him to use his divine nature for a self-serving purpose. That's what we see here in this. And this is also what he does all throughout history. It's what he did in the garden. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here he begins to appeal to this tree of knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden tree, but he begins to make the appeal of Look, it's so desirous. It's so delicious looking that if you just take it, God didn't really say don't eat of it. Did he really say you shall die? Did he really say these things causing this doubt? And he goes on to it here in verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is how the tempter works. He, he works to, to create this doubt of God's word to, that God is going to withhold something good from them instead of providing for them. For Adam and Eve, never mind, they were in a garden where they could eat of any tree in the garden, any other tree but one. And yet this is the one Satan tempts them with. He tempts them, see, God's withholding from you. He's not providing for for you. So provide for yourself by taking this good thing of knowing good and evil and take it for yourself so that you can be like God instead of under God. This is what Satan does here with Adam and Eve, and it's ultimately what he does here through Jesus. He wants to cause him to sin. He wants him to deny God's provision and use his divine nature for his self-interest and his self-gain. I love what Greg Gilbert in his book, Who is Jesus, writes here. He writes this on the first temptation. He says, the point was not whether Jesus would just do something, anything that Satan suggested. It was whether Jesus would, like Israel before him, demand his own comfort and relief right now. Or whether he would submit to the path of humility and suffering that God, his father, had placed before him. That's the point of the temptation. Would Jesus demand his self-fulfillment and forgo his hunger to serve self? Or would he submit to the father's purposes for him and continue to hunger until the Lord provides at the right time and the right manner? Because that's the point here of all of this building up 
It's not simply that Satan uses something always wrong. We, we often think of temptation as something black and white. Guess what, Christian? Guess what, friend? Temptation is not always black and white. In fact, most of the time it is gray. It's gray because it is taking something good and twisting it to be used at the wrong time or in the wrong manner. It's not a matter that Jesus is hungry and needs food. That's not what's at stake. It's taking something that was not intended for food and the divine son who comes as the suffering servant to use it for his self-pleasure and gain and fulfillment rather than serving others with it. That's what's at stake here. We see this Time and time again, but most importantly, we see it in how Jesus responds here. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what Jesus is pointing us to. It's not simply that we live by bread and fulfilling and satisfying our bellies, but we're to live by God's word. Jesus here quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. And as he's doing this, he's trying to teach us not only is he the true and better Adam, he's also the true and better Israel. Because here in Deuteronomy 8.3 that he's quoting from, Israel has failed to trust the Lord. He has failed to trust the Lord to feed them and provide for them. It has failed to hold to that word and do it. It's a warning for them to remember that they have not kept God's word as they prepare to enter the promised land. And here's what Deuteronomy 8.3 says. Oops, I thought I had it in here. Anyways, Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the wilderness journey, the Lord withheld food so that Israel would be dependent upon him and him alone for their provisions, where they could not boast of self and self-provision. And this is what Jesus quotes from. He's telling us in responding here to Satan from Deuteronomy 8, 3, that man doesn't live by bread alone. It's by God's word. God's word and obeying it. I love what Spurgeon goes on to to comment here. He says, A true son will not doubt his father and undertake to provide his own bread. He will wait to be fed by his father's hand. This is who Jesus is. He is the true son who trusts the father, not only to care for him, but to provide for him at the right time and in the right opportunity in the right manner. And this is exactly what Satan would have us tempted. It's taking these good things such as food and saying here, take it in the wrong way at the wrong time and in this wrong manner. Daniel Durrani in his commentary points this out. He writes, uh, I don't have it in here. Uh, the tempter invites Jesus to possess material things in the wrong time and manner in order to alleviate his hunger. 
Friends, if this is how Satan comes after the Son of God, how much more is he going to come after us in these same ways? He's going to take and try and twist and say, here is something good that God has declared good. Take it in this wrong way and in this wrong time for yourselves. Satisfy yourself, serve yourself with this good thing because God's not providing it in the right time for you. This is how Satan wants to appeal to our hearts, to lure with our hearts. He's saying, look, here, I've designed this. God has designed this by his own decree. Take it because he's withholding it from you. Here's the opportunity for it. Friends, it's not the right time and the right place for this. We see this in a variety of different ways. Think about the fact of how sin works and the temptation here. We see a friend, a neighbor having been gifted or are well provided for financially and we might be tempted to long for what they have and instead of rejoicing at God's provision for them we might be tempted to begrudge them and covet what they have you see that good gift was provided for your neighbor but it may not be yet your time for that God is not withholding because he's not a good God he's withholding because you he's still working in you and he will teach you to trust him in taking you through trials. He is caring for you in these various ways. But what about even how he does this in something more prominent in our day and time of sexual immorality? Of here, Here's something good God designed of, of sex, and yet here, take it. God's withholding it from you. He's withholding the gift of marriage and, and this gift of, of sex. So we're going to invest in this and like, Take it at this early time in sexual immorality. Take it in the form of adultery. Friends, it is twisting of this that Satan uses temptation to work in our hearts. He tempts us with these good things and twists them to take at the wrong time in the wrong manner. Friends, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus is to hear and obey the Lord Jesus in all that he is commanded to withhold even those good things until the right time and in the right manner. This is what it means to be his disciples. Friends, we must realize that we must live not by bread alone, but by every word of God. But friends, how can we live by God's word, every word of the Lord, if we don't get into God's word? If we don't immerse ourselves and feast on God's word, how can we be a people who live by God's word? Friends, we're quick to go and, and feast on Friday fish fries and, and T-bone steaks and ribs. How about feasting on God's everlasting word? Feasting on it until we are satisfied by it, living according to it, storing it in our hearts so we know it and live by it. For this is how the Son of God, the beloved Son, resists the first temptation. He knows the word of God and he says, this is how I must live in obedience to the Father. Jesus resists where Adam and Israel failed. Let's look to him. But friends, this is not the only time that Jesus was tested. He is te tested again, point number two, the temptation of knowledge. Verses five and six. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
He changes locations. In the second attempt, he changes tactics. The devil comes after the Son of God, again questioning his sonship, if you are the Son of God. But this time, he throws in Scripture. He changes it from being in the wilderness to the pinnacle or the high point of the temple. He changes it here and tests him by throwing Scripture and an abuse of Scripture at that. But he quotes Scripture nonetheless. Verses six, or verse 6 there. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Friends, I don't care how well you know your Bible. I don't know, care how much you can quote the Bible. Keep in mind that even the devil himself, that great fiery serpent, the tempter himself knows the scripture and can quote it, but in quote it, maligning it. It matters not how much of the scripture you know if you fail to apply it and live it. Just let that be a word of warning to us. We must know our Bibles and then live it. Here, the devil twists Psalm 91, 11 through 12 in a malicious way. In Psalm 91, 11 through 12, we do read, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And yet, in Satan's urging of Jesus here to take him to this highest pinnacle and say, just cast yourself down. God's word says he's going to catch you. He's going to catch you and keep you from, from going splat. I love what R.T. France says. Uh, Sorry, I forgot I had Psalm 91 in. Here's what R.T. France says. It would be to act as if God is there to serve his son rather than the reverse. In, in Jesus casting himself down here, it would be as if the son of God is here to be served by the father instead of the son serving the father. That Jesus is going to cast himself down. Father, now you act and serve me by catching me. It's kind of like that country song, Jesus Take the Wheel. Friends, don't, if any of you have ever been tempted to try it, count your lucky stars because you're a fool in it. Sorry, you're a fool if you let go of the wheel and expect Jesus to take it. That's what Satan is essentially telling Jesus here. Let go of the wheel, Jesus is going to take it, or, or your father's going to take the wheel and save you here in this folly. That's what he's acting like. Spurgeon goes on to, to add here. He says, this second temptation is a cunning one. He is persuaded rather to believe too much than too little. He is not now to take care of himself, but recklessly to presume and trust his father's promise beyond its meaning. That's what Satan is tempting the son of God to do. Not now to trust God too little, but to trust him too much. To, to take foolish steps and cast himself in. Friends, it would be like us saying, you know, all right, go and drop me in, in the war zone, in the heat of the battle. All right, I'm here, God, protect me. That's what Satan is tempting Jesus to do and say, enter this foolish op or circumstance and I'm going to protect you. That's what Satan twists this to be, but that's more than that. That's not what Psalm 91 is about. It is about God protecting his people as their refuge, as they trust in him, as 
real enemies come at them, not them casting themselves in the midst of folly. And Jesus resists, though. As Satan throws scripture at, he resists. Verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus will not test his father. He is not concerned about Okay, will God actually protect me? He knows his father will protect him. He knows his father will care for him because he is a good father, because he is the sovereign God who has sent him at this hour for this purpose. He knows the father will provide in that way. Friends, this is what this is about. But in doing so, he's also pointing us back once more to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.16 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. This is referencing from Deuteronomy back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7, where they're in Massa and the people are demanding for water. And Moses goes and ends up striking a rock because they want to put God to the test. Can God actually provide for us after he's delivered us from Egypt? Can he actually meet our real needs right here along the way? They test him. So in Jesus Quoting this here from Deuteronomy 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. He's teaching his people here where Israel has failed. I'm the one who will not test my God. I'm going to trust him along the way. I'm going to trust him to provide. I don't need to test. I'm going to continue to trust his goodness. I'm going to continue to obey him even when circumstances seem bleak. Friends, this is what the devil would have us do. He wants us to put God to the test and saying, all right, God, I need to know right here, right now, that you're going to actually provide and do what you say you're going to do. Christian, maybe that's how this temptation works out in our hearts because we think, okay, God, I need to actually know that you're going to fulfill your word. I need to actually know that you are trustworthy. You said the end is yours, but God, prove it right here, right now. Prove it in my life. I've been doing stupid stuff and I expect you to reverse all the consequences of it right here, right now. That's not how God works. That's putting God to the test digging our own holes and expecting God to miraculously act and bring us out of it. Jesus resists the second temptation by saying, I will not put God to the test. I'm going to trust who he is, who he's revealed himself to be over and over again through the pages of the Bible. Christian, will we do the same? Will we stop trying to test God and say, all right, God, is, is the end really yours? Well, maybe... Maybe one of the ways we we test is here and we say, you know what? The church is in danger. They're going to be gone in one generation. Praise God, I've not heard that here, but I have heard that from Christians saying that the church is one generation from being gone. Well, brothers and sisters, says Jesus, the king of kings, not promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, that God's remnant will continue to persevere. Let us trust in that. Let us continue to do the faithful ordinary and advance God's kingdom instead of being driven to test God by doubting. Let us trust in him. This is what we see Jesus do to resist this second uh, temptation in his wilderness journey. Let's trust God. Third, though, the temptation of self-glory. Verse number eight. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The first two temptations that the devil, the tempter, throws at Jesus are subtle. It's here, turn stones to bread. Here, cast yourself down, put your father to the test. Will you fall? The mask comes off, the charades are are no more, the gloves come off. It's clear as day what Satan is after here. He is after the son, bowing down to him in worship, in this third and final temptation. How does he allure him to this? Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, Here, I'll give it to you. All of this. But here's the irony. Jesus has promised this already in Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So what is the temptation then? Well, the temptation is to achieve all the nations without the cross. The temptations for Jesus here in this third and final temptation is that if you will bow down and worship me, all this that you've been promised, I'm going to give you, and you don't have to take a road of suffering to get it. You don't have to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You don't have to be nailed to a tree, put through the most shameful of shameful deaths. All of it you can escape. You can still have the kingdoms. Just bow to me. That's what Satan offers the Lord Jesus here. It's the trick that he offered to Adam and Eve. You will be like God if you just eat of this fruit. Here, you can still have it. In fact, you can actually be like God instead of being under God if you just eat. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed this test because they would go time and time again and put their trust in other kings and other nations and other gods. In the fact, while they're being led out of the wilderness, while they're coming out of Egypt and going to Mount Sinai, while Moses is talking with God, what happens? A golden calf is assembled and they bow down to it. Time and time again, our hearts turn to idolatry, to worshiping the wrong thing in order to be able to find comfort, to find our self without suffering. We don't like to suffer. And this is what Jesus is being deceived here. But what does Jesus do? Verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus refuses to bow his knee to suffer or to Satan and he chooses the road of suffering. He chooses the road to the cross, a road that is going to be hard and painful, a world, uh, a path that will face rejection. He will be spat on and mocked. He will be beaten, a crown of thorns put on his head, and then he will be pierced for our transgressions. He chooses the road of suffering in resisting this third and final temptation so that he can win our victory. He chooses this road, even in its pain and shame, to resist the devil for our sakes. Friend, we need to see here 
that the Son of God was obedient to the point of death and death on a cross to follow his Father, to submit to his ways and his plans. He resisted the devil, and what happens? Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That great serpent, the devil, finds himself defeated by the Son of God in this wilderness battle. He finds himself being the one to lose. I got to read these words from George Whitfield here. Hell, we may well suppose, like the Philistines of old, was confounded and gave a horrible groan when they saw their great Goliath in whom they had so long trusted thus shamefully and totally defeated in no less than three pitched battles. The first Adam was attacked but once and was conquered. But the second Adam, though thus repeatedly assaulted, comes off without the least sin, not only conquer, but more than a conqueror. This is what the Lord Jesus does as he resists the devil and the devil is forced to flee from him. He wins the victory. He is the one who defeats defeats Satan through his obedience and trust in the Father. And the very angels that Satan tempted him would come and keep him from stumbling. Guess what? They come and minister to him in the midst of his resisting Satan. They come and care for him and provide for him, likely feeding him and providing in that way. He is ministered, friends. This is the Savior we have. Time and time again, we will fail in these temptations. We will stumble along the way, but we must look to the Savior who has defeated the enemy. We must look to Jesus who has already declared, it is finished. I've defeated him. Yes, he came and struck my heel, putting me to death and buried in a tomb, but he rose three days later, defeating the curse of sin and death. He rose victorious and he is the snake crusher who is come. Yes, his heel was stricken, but he crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent, the devil, and all of his seed. Jesus is the Christus victor. He is the one who is one. So friends, let us, as we consider our temptations, as we consider the fact that Satan will come after in these same attacks against us, he will come appealing to us to, to not trust God enough, to, to trust God too much, or, or to worship other things. As he comes in these ways to tempt us, we must look to Jesus who is already one. We must look and resist the devil in the ways he has taught us by holding firm to God's word. By living by every word of God instead of bread and bread alone. We must not put God to the test, but we must also worship God and God alone. Let us look to his example and let that lead us out. So Christian, let's look to our glorious king on high, trusting his provisions and care in the midst of our ongoing fight. For though Satan still remains, his doom is guaranteed. He struck the hill of God's beloved son, but his head has now been crushed. Temptations, they will come, but when they, we can be sure, resist the devil and he will flee. Put up the shield of faith and the sword of God we must, but the strength to win will not come from us. It will come from him who has already won. That's what we have in Jesus, brothers and sisters. Let us beware of the wiles of Satan and keep fighting. But maybe there are some here who are still bowed to the devil and under the guilt and shame of temptations past. 
Maybe you're one who you realize you are already given over to these temptations. You already bow to false gods. You already are one who does not trust the Lord enough or you trust him maybe too much and have been led to moments of doubt. Friends, if that's you, let me tell you, Jesus has come to set you free. He has come and bore these temptations to identify with us so that he can save you in your guilt. He has come to graciously provide a way out. This is what he has come to do. He defeated death to bring life to us who hope in him. Will you, friend, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus this day? And even as we take of the Lord's Supper here momentarily, consider the fact that Jesus died, but he rose again. That his Blood was spilt so that we could be washed free of our guilt. And because of that, we can live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that Jesus is the Christus victor. He succeeds where we cannot. Father, we pray, Lord, that we will be a people who looks to him time and time again, Lord, to help in escaping the tempters, wiles, and schemes. Father, Lord, help us to have faith and hold to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to the Lord's table.